0: and that You have brought us here this morning for the purpose of looking at Your Word and understanding it and growing in it. We ask that You would remove from us all distractions and allow us now to focus upon You and upon Your Word and what it means to us. And we pray Your blessing upon this time of teaching and our obedience to Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have probably heard the saying or the statement, the proverb that's common amongst us, that somebody is so heavenly-minded that they are of little earthly good. Have you heard that sentiment expressed? What we mean by that usually is that somebody ends up spending so much time thinking about heaven or thinking about spiritual things or meditating upon Scripture that they're of no use to us otherwise in the world because they use up all of their mental capacities and their mental energies thinking about heaven and spiritual things, and they don't put any of it into living their day-to-day lives and actually making a difference. Have you ever said that, that somebody is so heavenly-minded they're of little earthly good? I will confess to you I have said that. I've said that back at a time when I didn't know any better. And now I've come to the understanding and the realization that although the proverb might be catchy, it might be cute, it is anything but true or biblical. Do you know what is true and biblical? The more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you are. You are worth more if you set your mind on things above and on where Christ is seated and on heavenly things, and you spend your energy and your efforts mentally there and spiritually meditating upon that, the more you do that, the more good you will be to this earth and to this world. Think back through church history and ask yourself, who are the men and the women who have cared for the ill and built orphanages and hospitals and soup kitchens and provided food for people who don't have food? Who are the people who give to charity and invest their time in improving the lives of people all over the world? Who are the men and women who have started colleges and universities like Harvard and Princeton for the purpose of training men for ministry, by the way? That's why those colleges were started. Originally seminaries. Who are the people who invest all of their time and their energies into those things? Bettering the lives and the conditions of people all over the world. Are they atheists? (laughs) You can hardly say that with a straight face. Atheists? Agnostics? Are they atheists and agnostics? No. Because to an atheist and agnostic, you're just a random collection of atoms. So we can dispatch with you if we want. Kill the elderly, kill the infirm, kill the sick, starve the children. doesn't matter. You're just a collection of atoms. It's those, ironically, who do not love this world, do not set their hopes on this world, are not friends with the world, do not love the things in the world, and are rebelling against the God of the world who don't do the most for the world. Isn't that ironic? Name for me one worldly Christian who sets their minds on temporal things, whose mind and faith and values are so polluted by the culture that they can rattle off the latest episode of South Park or whatever else is on TV, and their mind is so saturated by the the movie scenes and the television and the culture and the pop music and everything that's going on, who is really genuinely of any earthly good. Name me one Christian. You can't. You can't but I could name you a thousand who have set their minds on heavenly things and things above who have done a tremendous amount of earthly good. That's the irony of it. The more you hate the world and you dislike this world and set your mind on things above, the more useful you are to the world. Let me ask you another question and put it in a little bit of a different way. What do you think would be different about this coming week in all of the decisions that you're going to make, the places you're going to go, and the things you're going to do, if you were able for this whole coming week to think? about heaven and its implications. What would be different? If you were able to fast forward 10,000 years into eternity, into heaven, and look back on this coming week, and get heaven's perspective on everything that you're about to do and all the decisions that you're going to make and every place you're going to go. You say, Jim, I would quit my job. No, you won't. No, you wouldn't, because your vocation and your job is your calling from God. And that's how God is glorified through you, serving your neighbor through your vocation, Doing all that you do to His glory. You wouldn't quit your job, not if you had heaven's perspective. You might view your job from heaven's perspective then and realize, I shouldn't quit. I should serve the Lord with vigor here and serve my employer to His glory, but you certainly wouldn't quit your job. But what else would be different? My suspicion is that if we were to be honest, every one of us here would have to admit that there have been at least a few moments this last week where our minds were not thinking about heaven and its ramifications. Just a few moments have slipped by. Maybe a couple. And I'm not talking about while you were sleeping. I'm talking about during your waking hours. My suspicion is there have been at least a couple moments that have slipped by when heaven and the ramifications of heaven have evaded your thinking. Well, today we're going to be talking about heaven and our citizenship there and its implications for our day-to-day lives. Now, I understand that One sermon is not going to do a whole world of good for you. We're not all going to walk away from here instantly transformed, thinking about heaven and its implications, and live an entirely different week this coming week. But I do hope that this will contribute in some way toward your growth in setting your mind on things above. Because quite frankly, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, all of us are going to spend the rest of our lives growing in that perspective and trying to understand heaven and its implications for us here on earth. And to help us in that, Paul in Philippians chapter three, verse twenty, mentions our citizenship being in heaven. Look at the text again. We're going to look at verses. Well, we're going to look at verses twenty and twenty-one this week and next week. There's so much in verse twenty-one that I, I got to be honest with you. You got probably could have seen this coming. We're going to have to divide this up because look at verse twenty-one. He is going to transform this hum, this body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory. What does that refer to? The bodily resurrection. Generally speaking, of all men, the just and the unjust, and the fact that eternity is going to be a very physical place. And that doctrine of the bodily resurrection of all believers to eternal glory and all unbelievers to eternal damnation is so central to the Christian faith that it is that one thing, well, that's not just the one thing, but it's one of many things that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion and faith. The bodily resurrection of all men. You will be transformed from this body of your humble estate into a body that is conformed to the glory of Christ. That's a transformation that's coming. So we're going to take a whole Sunday and we're just going to look at the bodily resurrection because I think the last time we discussed this was back in Acts chapter 24. And how long ago was that? You say not long enough ago. Probably true, but it has been at least a couple years since we've discussed the bodily resurrection and all that that means for us here and for eternity and our hope. So today, we're just going to focus not on our hope, which is the resurrection, but on our home, which is heaven itself. So look at verse 20, because that's all the further we're going to get. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. I want you to stop there for just a second. Keep your eyes on the text. There's something about that phrase that irritates me, and it annoys me. Would anybody like to take a guess at what it is? For our citizenship is in heaven. You're gonna say, Jim, you are a nitpicker. If there ever was a nitpicker, do you notice, Anna? You want to take a shot at it? The H is not capitalized. Heaven is not capitalized. Whether you're reading a King James, a New King James, an NASB, or an NA, any one of the alphabet soup Bible translations, whatever one you're reading, the heaven is not capitalized. And I ask myself, why is heaven not capitalized? It's a place, isn't it? It certainly is a place. We capitalize Sandpoint. We capitalize Cleveland. We capitalize Spokane. Why do we not capitalize heaven? Heaven is a proper noun. And it refers to an actual place. Do you understand that there are people who are there? Do you understand that there are physical creatures who are there, who have physical form? Do you understand that even Jesus is there? And in a physical body, I might add, In a body that can walk, in a body that can handle things, in a body that can eat and can drink and can wear clothing, His body is just as physical or more so than the seat that you're sitting in, the Bible that you have on your lap, or even the walls that surround us. It is a physical place. It's not an idea. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's not a spiritual symbol for some other ethereal, mental, imaginary sphere. It's none of that. Heaven is a place. There are people there. There are angels there. God is there. That is His place. It is a different place than what the future heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, is going to be. But heaven is nonetheless a place. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. Why do we not capitalize heaven? Well, that was entirely on an aside. There was no extra charge for that. Just keep in mind you get what you pay for. Our citizenship, chapter 3, verse 20 says, is in heaven. Now, if you're reading the King James, and many of you are, it says our conversation is in heaven. The word conversation back in 1611 kind of had the idea of behavior or walk, and the King James uses that for conduct, our behavior, our walk, our conduct, how it is that we live. And so the King James translates that, our conversation is in heaven. The word is polytuma, polytuma, polis, from the word for city or state, from which we, we use that like metropolis, as the idea of a city or state. In Paul's day, or before Paul's day, it was used of, of political activity or having activity in political affairs or the administration of a city. Later on, the word, that noun, came to be used of those who conducted the political activity of a city. And by Paul's day, the word had come to just simply mean a commonwealth, a state, a homeland, a country, a place of where your citizenship was registered. And so it's a very, even though it's a key idea in the passage, it's a very... Difficult word to sort of translate into the English language because it, it has the idea of imp, it having implications in our behavior, but it's not strictly speaking of just our behavior. It's wrong to say that the conducting of our daily affairs is in heaven. It's not. And that's Paul's point. The conducting of our daily affairs is right here, is it not? You live, you breathe, you exist in this sphere of sin and death amongst unbelievers in a realm that is going to perish. It is a very temporal, very transient realm. But this is where you exist and this is where you live even right now. It's not our conversation our behavior that is in heaven. Friends, it is our citizenship which is in heaven. Heaven is our homeland. Heaven is our country. Heaven is the place where my name is enrolled. I'm a citizen there. That's the idea. Now the fact that my citizenship is in heaven has implications for my conversation down here. It has implications for my walk and how I conduct myself and how I live. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. What are the implications of this fact that my citizenship is in heaven? Over in chapter 1, Paul's already alluded to this in the book of Philippians. Over in chapter 1, and I want you to notice it because it was only a couple weeks ago when we were back in chapter 1, so you probably already remember this. But for those of you who may have missed that Sunday, I'll remind you of this. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel." The word conduct is the verb form of this word for citizenship. It's palituomai, which means to live in a manner that is worthy of your citizenship. Now, I think Paul used that term in chapter 1, verse 27, because he knew that later on he was going to lay this on us, not implicitly, but explicitly. Your citizenship is in heaven. That's why we conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Because when we do that, we are living in light of the fact that right now, as we sit here, as I speak and as you listen, our citizenship exists in heaven. Capital H, heaven. An actual place, not an idea, but a place where I am enrolled as a citizen. Paul says that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of that citizenship that we enjoy, which is in heaven. Now, it's interesting that these, this word, polytuomai and polytuma, is only used in Philippians. You know why that's significant? This idea of citizenship doesn't come out in any of other Paul's epistles. He doesn't use this sentiment. He does to the Philippians, and here's why. In 42 BC, Octavian, the emperor, granted full citizenship rights to the city of Philippi because Philippi had been instrumental in gaining a victory for the emperor, and so since that city had been instrumental in gaining a victory for the emperor, the emperor bestowed on it citizenship rights. Now here's what that meant for the city of Philippi. What that meant was the city of Philippi was basically governed and ruled and behaved as if it were on Italian soil, even though it was in Macedonia. So it was a long ways away from the city of Rome, but its structure as a government with its magistrates and its courts and all of that was modeled after Rome. And the people in the city of Philippi, and there were only a few of these type of Roman colonies, they took such pride in their citizenship that they would adopt the behavior of the Romans, the culture of the Romans, the dress of the Romans, the songs of the Romans. These cities, which were Roman colonies, came to be known as mini-Romes or small-Romes because everybody in there was so proud of their citizenship that they modeled it after those who actually lived in Rome. And Philippi had a degree of... Freedom in its own administration and its own policy as a city that wasn't given to other cities. All of the citizens that were born, everybody born in the city of Philippi, had instant Roman citizenship, and the city of Philippi was exempt from taxation. That's the type of city you want to live in, by the way. A city that is exempt from taxation. So they had all of these blessings and these privileges, but here's the catch. The city of Philippi could have its citizenship revoked like that. Now, not for no reason. But it could have its citizenship revoked for a very good reason. You see this threat in Acts chapter 16. I won't ask you to turn there, but read it on your own time. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas went to the city of Philippi. And you remember what happened? They cast the spirit out of the slave girl, and that created a big kerfluffle. And so they went in before the magistrates. The magistrates had them beaten and then thrown into jail. And at midnight they were singing, and then the Philippian jailer got saved after the earthquake. And Paul and Silas went out and they baptized the Philippian jailer and his household and they fed them and tended to their wounds. And the next day, the magistrates sent policemen down to the jail where Paul and Silas were and they said to them, bring them out and release them. And you know what Paul said to the policemen? He said, they have beaten us publicly, men who are Romans, without any trial. And now they want to just let go of us secretly? No, no. You have them come down here and release us themselves. And so the policemen went back to the magistrates and they they relayed these words of Paul and Silas to the magistrates. And you know what the magistrates did? They started to hyperventilate. That's my paraphrase. It says that they were greatly afraid. Why? Because they had publicly shamed a Roman citizen and beat him without trial and put him in jail. And you know what that meant for the city of Philippi? If Paul wanted to make an issue of it, he could have had the entire city's citizenship privileges, status as a Roman colony, revoked. Because Rome did not take kindly to its citizens being mistreated by anybody in any way at any time. And they were terrified. So the implications for a citizen in Philippi was you always wanted to conduct yourself in a manner that was worthy of citizenship because you were directly answerable to the emperor And you didn't want to do anything as an individual which might bring shame or reproach or negative consequences upon the whole group of citizens in your city. So the conduct was always very tightly regulated and everybody had that incentive to conduct themselves as citizens. Now you see the implications that Paul obviously lays out when he says this to Philippi. They would understand this. And here's what they would have understood. Even though we live here in the city of Philippi, our citizenship is in Rome. Right? Some of them had never even been to Rome, but that's where their citizenship was. And so they understood, even though I live here, I need to behave myself as if I were in Rome, directly answerable to the emperor himself. So having your citizenship in heaven is the exact same thing. In parallel fashion, you live right here. In this fear and death, surrounded by unbelievers, surrounded by death and decay and destruction, everything that's going to be burned up eventually, you live here, on earth, in this transient and temporal place, but you always know my citizenship, even though I've never been to heaven, my citizenship is there. And it's an actual place. Capital H, heaven. You realize you could go there today. That's how much of a place it is. You could go there today. Just like you could go to Spokane today. The difference is you can come back from Spokane. You can't come back from heaven. But it's an actual place. Now, what is the significance of heaven itself? Let me flesh out a few of the significant elements of of having our citizenship in heaven. First of all, friends, Jesus said this is not our home. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This place is not your home. You're just a pilgrim. You're just passing through. You're an alien. Hebrews says you're an exile and a stranger here. Peter says you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He has called you out of darkness so that you can proclaim the excellencies of his light and as such you are no longer of this world. We do not belong to this sphere. That's significant. It's also significant that my name is enrolled in heaven. you understand that? Look at Philippians chapter 4 verse 3, just a couple of verses down from where we're at actually. Paul says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Right now, in heaven, that real place, there is a book in which your name is written down. And the names of all of God's redeemed, and all of God's elect, is written in that book. And my name is among them. And if you've repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, your name is on that page as well. Jesus said you ought to rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Now friends, I ask you this question. What significance is it to you that right now your name is written on a book in heaven? And the book is not metaphorical or allegorical for some other thing, okay? I believe it's an actual book. It doesn't just mean in God's memory bank, it's a book. A physical book. Now, are the names written alphabetically? I don't know. Are the names written chronologically in the order that we came to faith in Christ? I don't know. Are they written in the order of who gets the most rewards? The guy's way up there at the top and then me back behind the appendix on the sort of the last page. Is that? I don't know. I don't care what order it's written in. I don't care where my name appears. But I will tell you something. I praise God every day that my name is written there. James C. Osman II. In that book. Just think about that for a second. I hope someday to walk up to the book and have an angel turn to the page and have my name see that name there and realize that was written before I was ever born. That is an amazing thought, is it not? That my name is written in the book of life. My name is inscribed there. You know what else is significant about heaven? That's where my Savior is. That's where he went. When he comes again, that's where he's coming from. On top of that, all of the saints are there who have gone on ahead of us. Some of you sitting here today have lost friends and loved ones, husbands or wives, children or parents or spouses or family members. There have been, all of us here have lost people from our own congregation who have already gone on ahead to be with the Lord. They've already gone there. All of them are there. They're there in that physical place. In heaven, that's where all my family is. Not my physical family, my spiritual family, my brotherhood, the saints that have come gone before. There are men in heaven and women in heaven whose lives and ministries, and they don't even know this yet, I don't think so, have impacted me in a tremendous way, whose examples I've tried to follow, the saints that have gone before, guys like Spurgeon and Whitfield and Edwards and D. Martin Lloyd-Jones And a host of other men whose writings I have read and whose sermons I have listened to and whose ministries I have followed and whose examples I've tried to emulate. And they are men who have gone on before who have had a tremendous impact in my life and they don't even know that. And they're there. I'm looking forward to seeing them. And all the Old Testament saints are there. Daniel and David and Noah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha. Moses and Joshua and Caleb. You know when you get an invitation to somebody's house, One of the first things that you always kind of want to ask yourself, even though you may not really ask it, you're thinking it in your mind, you already know what it is, don't you? Who's going to be there? And you might ask that kind of nicely. Oh, Who's going to be there? But in the back of your mind, what you're really trying to find out is, what's the company going to be like? Because like it or not, reality is that if the company is going to be really good, we look forward to going there, right? But if the company is going to be pretty pathetic, then we might find something else that we want to do. That's the truth. Listen, the company in heaven is going to be out of this world, pun intended. The company in heaven is going to be something that is just unbelievable. Doesn't that make you want to go there to see those men? All of those men have gone, and those women have gone on before us. Read through Hebrews chapter 11. They're all there. We have all of eternity to talk with them and to learn from them. That's the significance of it. All the saints are there. What else is there? My inheritance is there. Kept for me by the power of God, First Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says. My inheritance. All my rewards and my treasures are all in heaven. My prayers are answered from heaven. My family is in heaven. My interests are promoted in heaven. My prayers are heard in heaven. There's people that I know in heaven. Everything that is of value to me and everything that is of true lasting value to you is where? It's in heaven. And your name is enrolled in the citizenship roles of heaven. That's the significance of it. Now, what are the implications of this? We understand the significance of what heaven is and what it means to us, but how does that impact my life this coming week? Well, first of all, that should impact our loyalties, all of our loyalties. A citizen of Rome was directly answerable to the emperor. That's why Paul could say, I appeal to Caesar. Because he knew that at any time, if he felt that injustice was being done, he could appeal directly to the emperor. The same is true with us. Our loyalty is with the emperor of our home country, the king of kings, the king of our homeland who is Jesus. And so we give our answer to him and we appeal to him and our loyalty is with him. I'll be honest with you about something. Even though this coming week has July 4th, is probably the biggest day of this coming week, I want you to know I'm as patriotic as red, white, and blue, and apple pie and mom and baseball and all that stuff, but my loyalties do not rest with this country in the ultimate sense. I'm a patriotic individual. I I can't sing the the Star Spangled Banner without tearing up and crying like a little girl who just won a beauty pageant. I can't do that. I get get tears in my eyes when I salute the flag. I love this country. I love everything this country stands for. I love the history of this country. I love the men who have bled and died to give us this country. I love the 4th of July. There is nothing to me like the smell of barbecued hamburgers and burnt gunpowder and singed hair all together on the same day (laughs) That is a blessed thing to me and I love it and I wish somebody would come up with a candle that sort of put all of those smells into one and it, we could call it 4th of July. The, the, the holiday means a tremendous amount to me. I love it and I look forward to it every year. But my loyalties don't rest here. This is not my home. And this may strike some of you as appalling, but I've got to be honest with you, longer and longer I live, the less and less I care. Doesn't mean I don't vote. Doesn't mean I'm not active. Doesn't mean I don't promote righteousness and truth. But the less and less, ultimately, I really care. This is not my home. My hope is not here. If my hope were here, I would be crazy. I would be crazy at what I see going on. It must affect our loyalties. I am loyal, and you must be loyal, to Jesus Christ and the home country above all else. Everything else serves that loyalty. That single-minded focus. Second, it also affects our conduct. What does it mean to conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven? It's really a simple thing. More difficult, really, to live and apply than it is to understand, but it's basically this. Is immorality and lying and thieving and gossiping and slandering characteristics of heaven? Then neither should it be among God's people, the citizens of heaven. Do citizens of heaven look at pornography? Do citizens of heaven lust? Do citizens of heaven lie and gossip and steal from their employer and lie to their government and lie to their spouse or lie to their employer? Citizens, does that go on in heaven? If it doesn't go on in heaven, it ought not to go on on earth among the citizens of heaven. If Jesus Christ is worshipped there, he ought to be worshipped here. If Jesus Christ is honored there, he ought to be honored here. If he is spoken of well there, he ought to be spoken of well here. That is how a citizen of heaven lives. A citizen of heaven lives his life in all of his moral and ethical and outward conduct toward believers and toward God as one who is fit for the kingdom of heaven. That's how a citizen of heaven lives. So you conduct all of your life in light of heaven, living like you're a citizen of heaven. Why? Because you are. So you live like a citizen of heaven. It affects our conduct. It also affects our relationships. you realize every time you gather together here on Sunday morning that this is a foretaste and a glimpse of heaven? You ever thought of this in those terms? You say, this is a pretty sick foretaste of heaven. It might be, but it is a foretaste of heaven nonetheless. Polluted by sin as it is, yeah. Polluted by imperfection as it is, yeah. With all of the sin that comes with us because we're all sinners gathering together in a place, as a group of sinners, but as a group of God's people, this gathering of God's people and the fellowship of God's people is the closest thing we will ever get to heaven on earth. You know why? Because this is the gathering place of the citizens of heaven. And so as we gather together and we're all conducting ourselves as citizens of heaven toward each other and with one another, we get a little taste, a little taste of what heaven is going to be like. You are not going to spend a million years in heaven in a cabin sitting by a stream all by yourself doing nothing but meditating. That is not going to be your heaven. Heaven is the gathering of God's redeemed, the gathering of the elect people of God and when you gather together here as His redeemed you are just gathering together and getting a taste of what eternity is going to be like. Imagine all of the most sublime, all of the most precious, all of the most blessed moments that you've ever had in a church service here or anywhere else. Take those strip them of all of the sin and the imperfection and the, and the wrong motives and everything else and multiply them by a thousand times, ten thousand, and that's what heaven is going to be like. And when we gather together, we get just a taste of that. It ought to affect our relationships. And by the way, your hunger and your desire to be amongst God's people is indicative of your hunger and your desire for heaven itself. There's, there's no way you can avoid that. Show me somebody who has no desire to be around God's people whatsoever. And I'll show you somebody who has no hunger for heaven and has not set their mind on things above. I've said this before and I would say it a thousand times. I would rather be in a prison surrounded by believers than in a park surrounded by unbelievers. Because the gathering of God's people and the fellowship of His people, whether it's in the backyard around a barbecue or in a prison suffering for Christ, is the most precious thing in all of this world. It is the closest thing we get to heaven on this side of eternity. It's the closest thing we get. It ought to affect our relationships. And fourthly, it should affect our anticipation. This is at the end of verse 20. I've been waiting a long time to get to this one, and I am going to hurry up because I know you've been waiting longer than I have. Verse 20 says, From which, that is from heaven, we await eagerly a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await eagerly the Savior. The word is a very interesting word, that word wait. It's only used eight times in all of the New Testament, six of them by Paul. It's always used of expecting or waiting for something that is future and something that is certain. It's not a hope. It's not sort of a wishful thinking. It is an eager anticipation. Apek is the word. It's one of those cool sounding words. And it means to eagerly wait for something. It's used three times in a familiar passage, Romans chapter 8, and I want to read this to you. Listen for this. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly. There's our word. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this looks forward to verse 21 of Philippians chapter 3. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves Waiting eagerly, there's that word again, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. It doesn't, we're waiting for a Savior to come from heaven, but it's not sort of an emotional, detached, apathetic, sort of we're hanging out here, we're waiting for Him. The word means far more than that. The word means an intense anticipation for something, and it all but one time in the New Testament is used for something that is still future to us, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he will be revealed in glory. When he comes back with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ are raised and our bodies are transformed, when this mortality puts on immortality and death is swallowed up in victory, that's what I'm waiting for. That's what we eagerly anticipate. And listen, if your citizenship is in heaven, and if you're conducting yourself in a manner that is worthy of your citizenship, then you cannot but help waiting for your Savior and wishing that that day would come. I'll be honest with you. As much as I love living, as much as I love being with my wife and my children, as much as I love being with you, I can't wait for this mess to get wrapped up. And I'm not just talking about this sermon. I'm talking about everything in life. (laughs) All of the sin, all of the depravity, all of the wickedness, everything that goes with this world. I want it all to be wrapped up. And if I were the Lord, I would wrap it up by this afternoon. But He is patient and He is loving and He is kind and He is not willing that any of His people should perish. And so He is long-suffering toward us. Far more long-suffering than I would be. But we wait and we wait and we wait eagerly, eagerly. Our citizenship affects our relationships with each other our conduct out in the world, our expectation and our loyalties and our our anticipation of what is about to come and what is going to happen. Paul said, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me. And not only to me, Paul says, but what? To all those who have loved his appearing. To all those who have loved his appearing. Now I ask you, do you love the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? He may come this week. But if He doesn't, my name is still written in heaven. Now, although my citizenship is in heaven, although my spiritual family is in heaven, the saints are there, my Savior is there, my inheritance is there, my blessings are there, my rewards are all there, all my expectation is there, and what I'm waiting for is right there, and I'm waiting for it to come here. I have one massive problem. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Something has to happen to this corpse before I can go to my home country. That's what verse 21 is all about. Something has to happen to this before I can go there. And we're going to look at what that is next week. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, we thank You for the confident hope that we have of the resurrection. We thank You that our names are written in heaven and that You will not blot us out from the book of life. That is Your promise to us. Thank You that we are secure. Thank You that we are redeemed. Thank You that You have purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We long and look forward to that day when Your name will be vindicated, when righteousness will rule and reign, when truth will triumph, and when You will set us free from this realm of sin and death. Death for us, Father, is not something that we ought to dread or be terrified of, It is something that opens to us the door of eternity, and we are grateful that we have that hope and that confidence, and we are thankful that you've given it to us in Jesus Christ. It is in his name and to his praise and glory that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.